uh, for tonight, we want to get practical, and it's a way, in a way uh, that deviates just a bit from the outline I gave you last week. Not much, really. It's, it's still in the category. Uh, but I'm going to go over and kind of uh, fill out that outline um, now in just more of an overview fashion. Uh, but then um, we'll go, come back to each of those points in the outline and kind of really uh, try to get practical about those things. I gave you an outline last week. You don't need to have it necessarily in front of you. It might help you to follow. But uh, got it from Greg Bonson. It was his kind of outline of non-Christian worldviews. And I'll just go over that very quickly before I kind of get into tonight's uh, lesson. Three basic worldviews that were on that, uh, on that sheet. Atheistic materialism, dualistic idealism, and then the non-Christian religions. Um, you might keep those worldviews distinguished in your head like this. Atheistic materialism is kind of the underlying worldview of today's scientism, today's secularism, which is uh, predominant, as you know, in the educational system. It's the uh, worldview that Greg Bonson would uh, interact with very well. As ex for examples, it's the one he used when he, or uh, one he interacted with when he debated Dr. Gordon Stein in that debate we listened to. And um, we need to say that although that is the prevalent worldview of the academy, it's not the consistent worldview. It is probably their default thinking, but it's not the consistency that they have with that worldview with the people that we know and interact with. Uh, very few people are consistent in their atheistic materialism. The worldview that most of your unbelieving friends and neighbors live by, and the ones that mine live by, is probably much more of a dualistic idealism. They, they don't know that. Uh, they wouldn't identify it as dualistic idealism. But that is their default worldview. Practically, they live like atheistic materialists, because that's what they've been taught. That's what suits them at most times, because it absolves them of any accountability. But in their consciences, and the way they kind of practically live, they realize that there are still um, not just atoms, not just matter that exists. There are some things in their consciences, like ideals like love and justice, and beauty and goodness, standards of fairness and equity. Um, they understand that. They just have no idea whatsoever how the material world that they live in interacts with that ideal world that's somehow, somehow transcendent high and up there, and that is the same problem Plato had. So we'll see if we can come back to that and provide a little uh, clarity. Atheistic materialism, dualistic idealism, might see both of those as philosophical um, in nature. The final worldview is religious in nature. It's the worldview of all uh, non-Christian religions. When I use the word religion, uh, Christianity, in the definition I'm about to give, Christianity would be seen as a religion. Um, new, the Webster's New Universal Unabridged Dictionary, the big, thick monster I have on my desk. According to the first two entries, religion would be a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and the purpose of the universe. Christianity fits into that, doesn't it? Um, a religion would be a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons or sects. That's, that's us. So Christianity is, according to those uh, definitions of religion, 
We do recognize that as a worldview, Christianity stands apart completely from uh, all the world's non-Christian religions in every way. It complete, uh, completely teaches a, a different set of metaphysics and epistemology, epi uh, ethics, we talked about all that. But other non-Christian religions, all essentially the same. We said there's basically one non-Christian religion and it's fractured into a lot of different forms. So there are religions of, uh, all, all the religions are essentially the same in the fact that they all uh, promote a self-salvation. They all uh, are talking about man's attempts to uh, save himself, reach God, get to heaven, uh, whatever it is, uh, alleviate their own guilt, achieve perfection. Um, but they're really essentially all the same. There is no true redemption in them. We can uh, divide the religious worldview, if you remember back to that outline I gave you, uh, we can divide the religious worldview into three distinct kinds of religions. So there are, if you have your outline, it's one, two, and three for the worldviews. This is A, B, and C for the uh, kinds of non-Christian religions. You have religions of transcendent mysticism. There are religions of imminent moralism. And then there are religions that are biblical counterfeits. These uh, biblical counterfeits are essentially the like the made-in-China knockoffs of Christianity, okay? <laughs> so the religions of transcendent mysticism, what does that mean? Big, um, big words there. But uh, they are the ones, like Hinduism, that emphasize what is beyond human experience, beyond human understanding, that which transcends rationality. So in Hinduism, they basically have given up on rationality, uh, all uh, attempts at consistency, and they've embraced contradiction as the way to empty the mind and be absorbed into the divine in the end, like nirvana. So that's transcendent mysticism. There are also religions of imminent moralism. In imminent moralism, they're not interested in some other transcendent reality. They are um, interested in this world. So these are religions that put the emphasis on that which is imminent, that which is near at hand, like uh, Confucianism or Buddhism would be those kinds of uh, religions. So to get a handle on the here and now, they teach uh, asceticism, a kind of a rigorous treatment of body and mind, a rigorous lifestyle. Think like a, like a monk sitting on a pole. That's their view, to tame the body, tame the passions, and, uh, and get the best uh, experience for the mind here and now, imminent moralism. Uh, they ultimately all result in complete legalistic bondage is really what they result in, but we'll get to that. Finally, there are religions that I said are biblical counterfeits, and these biblical counterfeits again divide into three different categories. There are the Unitarian counterfeits, there are the polytheistic counterfeits, and finally there are the pseudo-messianic counterfeits. So biblical counterfeit religions. All of those are perversions of what's found in scripture, what's found in the Bible. Uh, whether it's the religion of Israel or uh, you know, an Old Testament um, Judaism or New Testament Christianity or a mixture of both. So biblical counterfeits, all of them attempt to ape the truth with some kind of a fake uh, conceptual forgery. Um, some counterfeits are organized religion variety and others are more like cults and sects and splinter groups and things like that. So Unitarian counterfeits borrow concepts from the Bible 
but they reject, ultimately they all reject, the Trinity. They're Unitarian in nature. So can anyone name a Unitarian counterfeit of Christianity? Scott? Mormonism. Uh, no, no, we'll save that one. Save that, it's the next category. What? Jehovah's Witnesses, yes, Jehovah's Witnesses. They are, that's basically Jehovah's Witnesses uh, denying the deity of Christ. They're basically a rehash of ancient uh, Arianism, okay? Uh, what's another one? Very, very big religion. Many Americans are scared by this religion. Islam, right? Who said that? Someone over there is a female voice in this area. So I just want to know who to give it the start to. So Islam also defines itself, uh, it's definitionally an anti-Christian religion. Its fundamental tenets disallow belief in Jesus as the Son of God. They say Allah is one and has no sons. That is, he has no partners. And so in their fundamental tenets, they're anti-Christian by nature. Jesse? Would that also be under pseudo-messianic pseudo, pseudo or no? No, not really. They do have a sense or concept of the Mahdi, who is going to be like a second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but no, it's, it's not so much. It's more strict Unitarian monotheistic. Okay. What's one more? What's one more monotheistic? Judaism, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. Totally rejects Christ as the Messiah, strict monotheist, rejects uh, the Trinity. Uh, and in that way, Judaism and Islam are really brothers, aren't they? Cousins. So they don't, would never see themselves that way, but religiously, they unite together against Christ. What about the uh, most common polytheistic counterfeit? Mormonism. There's Scott anticipating my second question. Um, <laughs> So Mormonism is the most common polytheistic counterfeit that we know. Obviously, there's Hinduism with its millions of gods. Uh, but Mormonism was without rival the most polytheistic religion in the world. I put religion, you might say, in air quotes for Mormonism. Uh, because in many ways, Mormonism still meets all the criteria of a cult. They have secretive rights. They have they're an exclusive group. They use social manipulation like... Uh, brainwashing and shunning and groupthink and groupspeak and all that. They uh, influence and manipulate people that way. They, they redefine Christian terminology. They add to Christian books. They have radical loyalty to a system and to a, uh, a leader. So uh, calling Mormonism a religion is really giving it a bit of a promotion, but that may be warranted today just because they're getting so big and ubiquitous. Um, it's really a, a blend of the Bible and plagiarisms from the King James Version of the Bible in particular. Uh, they've got a platonic view of the pre-existence and all that's mixed with the fantasies of treasure hunters and very young men. So that's all Mormonism right there. We'll get to that some other time. Wayne, you were going to say something? Yeah, as you've gone through the categories, maybe I just I haven't been following the plot well enough. Um, <laughs> but where would you put... Um, Corruption of Christianity that perverts the view of God, like health and wealth and Joel Osteen. We're going to get to that. Thank you. Yeah, you're you're anticipating me. What I want to talk about tonight. Um, there, one more category in this plotline um, is the pseudo pseudo messianic counterfeits. Uh, and I know that uh, you have to be a little bit older to remember some of these, but I'm telling you, they will make a resurgence. Uh, Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, 5, that there will be Christ coming, saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Christ. We're never to... Anybody who says they're the Christ, 
we know that they're not the Christ. So, <laughs> but you wouldn't even have to look at the Bible and say, let me think about this. No, um, we're going to know when he returns. But um, back in 1954, the Reverend Sun Young Moon, um, Moon started the Unification Church. His followers were called the Moon Eaters, right? Remember them at the airports? Yeah. Uh, in 1955, Jim Jones started the People's Temple and then brought all that to a tragic suicidal end in 1978. Uh, most recently, you guys, some of you may remember the tragedy of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Uh, again, another messianic um, type of a, a situation there. So all, all that will make a, a resurgence even if your, your uh, memory doesn't reach back that far. But So we're going to cover... Uh, that was just an overview of that outline. I just want to kind of unpack that for you. Um, we're going to cover some of those counterfeits in the weeks to come, examining all of them in the light of Scripture. But for tonight, and probably, well, definitely next week, I'd like to talk about uh, something that Wayne brought up is uh, not, not just that, but the most common forgery, um, the most widespread biblical counterfeit. Uh, I think that we've seen in our generation and generations uh, before us. This is really the one that we all are faced with as we interact with people on a regular basis. So we want to identify this. This, um, this biblical counterfeit is, as I said, it's one we're all familiar with. And this, this counterfeit is so um, pervasive, so familiar, um, I, I do think you interact with it on a regular, probably maybe even a weekly or daily basis, but you may have never identified it as a forgery, as a fake, as a counterfeit, because it's subtle and its members and proponents seem to be so similar to us, so like us. Uh, and that's how it flies under the radar of biblical discernment. Anybody want to venture a guess at the most common biblical counterfeit, uh, which is not on Greg Bonson's list? Yes. Catholicism. Okay, so you said Catholicism. Good, good answer. We'll come back to that. David. Easy believism. Easy believism. Okay, good. That's a really good answer. Yeah. Others. Yes. Um, the evangelicals. Like the evangelicals, like us. <laughs> no, I mean like. Yeah, um, I mean that's don't don't no. retract your answer just because I'm making fun of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're right. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Joe. Cultural Christian. Cultural Christianity. Okay, good. I think Wayne talked about the health, wealth, prosperity. So we'll throw that one in there. Wes. Uh, probably Arminianism. Arminianism. Mmm. We're going to start in fights over there, Wes. <laughs> Say again? Emergent. Oh, emergent Christianity, a postmodern form of, really it's modernism part two. It's really different than modern. Yeah, Brett? I forget the full title, but that therapeutic deism, uh, something, moral therapeutic deism. Yeah, moral, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. That is the uh, Christian Smith, and this is now about, I think it's about 20 years since I did that study. Yeah. Yeah, that soul searching, uh, that looking at America's teens. You guys might want to look that up. It's a very good documentary, but also heartbreaking. Uh, they interviewed America's teens and found that the religion that they had received from us Christians was moralistic, therapeutic deism. Uh, 
moralistic in the sense that it's teaching a set of moral standards, maybe not even Christian necessarily, social justice, that's a moral standard with which to judge people. Therapeutic in the sense that God is all about, you know, um, dealing with your hurts and your felt needs and all that kind of stuff, psychology, psychologized. And then deism in the sense that God is really remote. Um, he's, he's kind of wound it up and walked away. That's what our young people... 20 years ago, they were young people in their teens, and now they're in their 20s and 30s. So the people that we interact with a lot, moral therapy, moralistic therapeutic deism. So another uh, hand, I thought, was it you, Annie? Yeah, Brett said it. Brett said it, okay. Anybody else want to throw something else in there? Okay, so I, you're, you have all scored the right answer. <laughs> so, and, and the reason I say that, and I'm not just trying to flatter you or, or say that you're all honor students and put you on my bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> you, I don't know that this, what I'm going to describe, has an official name, but I like to call it, this is in my quotes here, sub-Christian Christianity. Sub-Christian Christianity. And by sub-Christian, I mean it falls short of true Christianity. It's very, very Christian. And that's why Roman Catholicism, going back to that first answer, Roman Catholicism was Christianity. Coming out of the apostolic age and into the age of the early church fathers, it was Christian. It was the gospel. It was, but it became Especially when Constantine uh, made Christianity not only not illegal, but then um, promoted people who were the powerful, who were Christians. Um, all of a sudden, Christianity became the organized religion, became the religion of the powerful and the wealthy. And so over time, over centuries, that built into a centralized, strengthened, codified set of doctrines. Roman Catholicism, what we identify now as Roman Catholicism, what the reformers had to go back to a biblical corrective. So it just, Roman Catholicism would be that, and it still is that, but it's just been, that's a codified version. I'd say what we see now in evangelicalism is something that's completely fractured, and that's why all your answers are correct answers. Those are all different versions of really what I think is the same thing, a sub-Christian Christianity. And I'm only calling it that so we can kind of get our arms around it and try to try to deal with this beast, okay? Um, so there have been, and uh, there have been throughout the decades and currently are, a growing number of pastors and uh, theologians, churchmen today who believe that one of our biggest mission fields is among those who describe themselves as evangelical Christians. And I, I agree with them. I think that's true. Many, Christ, many Americans self-identify as evangelicals. Every time those Pew surveys come out, they check the evangelical box. Um, but I really wonder if people know what the word evangelical actually means. I know here in this room we understand that, but you know, evangelical is an adjective. It describes those people who adhere to the evangel, which is the gospel. And, you know, we need to understand that to hold fast to the authentic gospel, the, the one that the apostles proclaimed and the church fathers defended and the reformers recovered, to hold fast to that gospel is not at all common. That's, that it's, it's not common. It's, uh, many people drift from it. They hold on to it for a little while and they drift away. And it's often counterfeited 
as a cl very close look-alike uh, that's hard to detect, especially in its infancy and in its nascency. So God used, as I said, the Protestant Reformation to expose uh, the forgery that Debbie raised, which has been, which was codified in the Roman Catholic Church. And now I would make the case that rather ironically, today's Protestantism has succumbed to a similar downward shift like the Roman Catholic Church experienced 500 years ago. Wayne. Yeah, I, I would actually just add that, uh, it, in fact, it is so rare now uh, to have a true evangel view of, of the gospel, right, uh, consistent with the church fathers that we are now labeled as fundamentalist among what are more mainstream uh, sects of identified Christianity. Exactly, Wayne. If you if you were to say some of the things some of the fathers say, say take Augustine or honestly, take even the Apostle Paul and just quote, but don't attribute the quote. Just speak it. In many evangelical churches, they'll want to run you right out. They will. They want to run you right out. They don't identify it anymore as Christian. So they are the ones, um, you know, with a lot of the power and the wealth and everything else, and so they want to push us out. And that's, that's very true. That's happening. We just need to understand that Roman Catholicism didn't start with a false gospel. Um, as I said, it, it became what it was through the centralization of wealth and power and uh, due to what I think is the inevitable decline of human institutions, it became what it was. So evangelicalism, though, has been undergoing decline over centuries, over definitely the number of decades now, but um, really due to a lack of that central centralization of power and a codification of its doctrine, um, you know, those, the fuzzy boundaries of what makes an evangelical an evangelical, which is why everybody can claim evangelicalism, but really no one knows what it is exactly. Um, the decline is somewhat harder to identify and pin down. And so that's what we're going to try to attempt to do a little bit more tonight and next week. If you go back to mainline Protestantism in the United States, that is all those major denominations that uh, were not were distinctively and unapologetically not Catholic in our country. Um, so we're talking about the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Episcopal Church, which is really just an Americanized form of Anglicanism. Uh, the United Methodist Church, the American Baptist Church, the United Church of Christ, and uh, there are others as well. But those mainline denominations all embraced liberalism. Uh, and liberalism is a capitulation to the modernizing spirit of the age. So there was um, an anti-supernaturalism. There was a, an ecumenism, an inclusivism that the liberal churches, liberal mainlines succumbed to. While the evangel or while the Protestant mainline churches were in decline, many viewed evangelicalism as the safe, biblical, um, friendly alternative, you might say, to a strident separatist fundamentalism. And that is certainly what evangelical was and has been. It's sort of like a, hey, we are still intellectually and culturally relevant and engaged with you as unbelievers and with the academy, but we still do hold to the Bible. We still hold to uh, biblical supernaturalism. We defend the miracles of Jesus, namely the resurrection, the virgin birth, 
and evangelicals held to that. And that was a good instinct on the part of evangelicals, um, not to, to hide out in uh, some kind of a let's circle the wagons, kind of a fundamentalism, attack everybody who comes near, uh, even though um, you, know, you can certainly understand that instinct, but uh, evangelicals still wanted to engage. And that was a good instinct on their part, but really it has, as we've watched, uh, devolved into a genuine sub-Christian mess. Mess is the technical term. <laughs> so um, we want to try to identify this sub-Christian Christianity, this evangelicalism adrift. And first, before we get into any uh, detail, I'd like to help you see that we have a responsibility from Scripture to discern between false Christians and, and true Christians. Okay, so I've just given you an overview of this sub-Christian Christianity now. I want to talk about a biblical call to discernment. Let me ask uh, you a question. I'll start this by asking a question here. Do you think it is, more, it is important to discern whether a person you're talking to is a Christian or not? Do you think that's important, and why is that? What, what, explain your answer. What are your thoughts? Daniel? Well, just even talking with the individual, um, I think it's helpful to understand if you're having fellowship or if you're having a conversation. Um, and so to see where the other person is at, are you evangelizing or are you encouraging your brother or sister in sanctification? Okay. So it helps you, you might very, very well said, so you, it helps you with your approach to this person in the conversation. Good. Uh, Alyssa. That's what I was going to say, so, but he said it better. He said it better. Well done, Dan. Um, yes, let's go with Carrie and then Joe. Guard your heart with all diligence for from the first things of life. I think it's Psalms. So I think that if you were guarding... Proverbs 4.23, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So guard your heart with all diligence. So you're saying you need to discern the person you're talking to, whether they're a Christian or non-Christian, because you don't know the kind of influence that they'll be on you if you want to guard your heart, is what you're saying? Good. That's a good answer. Joe? I just wanted to define the terms because you could have a conversation you thought was really good with them, but really they think a whole different Jesus and a whole different, uh, like all the de definitions mean something totally different. So. Okay, so just even for the purpose of clarity in a conversation, it's important. You can talk, now I have to grant that you probably can't do this, you're, you're probably a little more discerning uh, than many, but, um, but let's just say you had a an off day and a superficial conversation with a Mormon. You could talk about Jesus, heaven, even sin. You could talk about all these things and talk in those terms and walk away thinking, I've just talked to a friendly Christian. And then you were going to think that. But you could. It's conceivable. Yes. I think you can also give, like, a, we do an injustice in giving a false hope to a lot of people. Because a lot of times when you're having this conversation with somebody that's a Christian, you're like, Oh, but you know, pray to the Lord, and He's going to hear. And and you just start using Scripture with them that is very uplifting to those of us that are in Christ. But if they're not, there's really no, there's okay. no hope for them in that. And so we end up treating the wrong, and they walk away with this. Oh, wow. This this kind of uplifted, precious moments devotional word right. of the day from you. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the danger? Spot on comment. What is the danger of giving a false hope to a non-Christian? 
I think we end up with a lot of people that think they are Christians because they've been affirmed by people that are, and they think, oh, I'm safe, I'm fine, okay. I'm on the right path, and we just let them fall. <clears throat> So, I don't know if you could hear what she said, but you, you end up giving false hope to a non-Christian, and it makes them think that they're fine. It makes them think. And actually, it goes even worse than that. You actually inoculate them against someone who tries to share the gospel with them in the future. Right, because they get like, how dare you tell yeah. me about Christ? I know about him. Yeah. You don't need to be witnessing to me. And it's like, oh my gosh. I've been talking with Amy Heath, and I am good to go. I know. <laughs> <laughs> don't you... Rupture my, oh my bubble, yes. So <clears throat> I think it's always a danger to, to talk with somebody you don't know what their background is at all about the deeper things of Scripture. You know, God choosing the elect, or uh, God God being God, even if um, evil happens in the world. Um, if you don't know anything about their background or what, they, you could completely blow them out of the conversation. Okay. But I was always confused in the church by. In the church in particular, but you know, in my family and, and in, on the job, how many people would identify as Christian who never talk about the Bible and will actively shut down a biblical conversation? Yes. I hope you heard that. Yes. How many people identify themselves as Christian, but they will actively, sometimes aggressively, shut down any conversation you try to have about Christianity? What gives? What's up with that? Um, tell me if this has been your experience at all. Gary and Odie, uh, Gary and Odie, Gary, Odie, and I, the two of us. We were just discussing this the other day, but you're, you're talking with a fellow believer, okay? And, um, and you're talking with that fellow believer about someone in that person's family, a friend, an acquaintance that they have. And your fellow believer is expressing concerns about the person's situation, like their uh, health issue or a job concern, or maybe it's a, a financial thing or whatever, okay? Just a, it's a practical life issue, and they're concerned about it. And you ask the question, thinking about, as you're thinking about how to process and pray for this person, you say, is your friend a Christian? First, why do I need to know that in order to pray more effectively? What, what is my concern in asking that question? Yeah, Rebecca. All of this is because you care whether they end up in heaven or hell. Okay, good. So you're concerned, even in your prayer life, about whether they end up in heaven or hell. So it's a loving concern. Um, it's not, as we are so falsely accused of, uh, a, a religious uh, pharisaism on our part. It's not this, this um, exacting legalism or pride. It's just concern. We, we love them and don't want them to go to hell. Okay, so back to a little scenario. Your Christian friend, as you ask, is your friend a Christian? Your Christian friend answers you by saying, oh yes, she believes in God, most definitely. Um, or the answer is, oh yeah, he goes to such and such church. Maybe you know the church, or more likely you know the church and the name of the church just doesn't give you that free and easy feeling <laughs> that they are a Christian. So I see that in hand, but I'm just at it for time's sake. I'm going to get back to you. So another question I have for you. When you, tr when you hear a fellow Christian try to assure you that, oh yes, so-and-so believes in God, or so-and-so is a Christian, but the evidence that you, uh, you find is pretty thin, so they have a vague or undefined belief in God, or they, they don't really attend church ever. Um, 
What is that about? And, and why is it that fellow Christians say such things? Shouldn't we, fellow Christians, know better? Why do we, why do, we do that? Wayne. Uh, societal influence, right? We're, we're told to not judge and to accept the best of someone else. I mean, that comes up uh, with my extended family quite a bit. Okay, don't judge. Accept me at my best. Believe my Facebook profile. Don't believe what you actually see. My Facebook profile is what I want you to see. All the photos, me being happy, all the good food I eat, the people I'm with, the places I travel. That's my image. That's my avatar. Look, look I've, I've said the name of a church three times this year. What do you want? Exactly. What do you want from me? Um, Wes? I think that we, uh, it's especially hard, as you just mentioned, to do it with family and friends because we love them, they love us, they have provided for us, we have provided for them, and we don't want to be in a position where we have done that wrong, mostly because in the end it all comes back to our center focus. We would want that same benefit of the doubt if somebody asked that other friend that question about us. If that makes sense. Yeah, we want to be given the benefit of the doubt. True. Um, when it comes to issues of heaven and hell, do you want to be given the benefit of the doubt? No. <laughs> and that's, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Maybe the benefit of the doubt helps us to get along better in the here and now. But in the sweet by and by, for those that we've given the benefit of the doubt all their life, it's not going to be so sweet by and by. It's going to be a harsh reality. I think, um, as I've been thinking about this, I'm not, I'm not wired this way, so I have to try to get myself into other people's shoes a little bit, but I think there are some sensitive souls who just want to take people at face value. Um, maybe they just don't even, their, their mind just doesn't even go to that level to think a little bit more deeply, uh, ask more penetrating questions. They, but you often find that people, Christians, claim to be Bereans when it comes to the Bible. We all want to be thought of ourselves as Bereans and, and, and checking, uh, you know, receiving the word with all eagerness and still examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. But they refuse to be Bereans when it comes to people. They refuse to, they want to exegete the scripture, but they don't really want to exegete the heart. They don't really want to exegete the person because it seems unfriendly. Yeah. Just, for me personally, I struggle with what people think about me and mm -hmm. valuing that more highly than what God thinks sometimes. Okay, thank you. That's a very transparent, honest answer. She said she said sometimes it comes down to for her that she feels uh, she's concerned more about what other people think about her than about what God thinks about her. And that biblically is defined as fear of man rather than fear of God. And listen, thank you for being transparent and honest. Every single person in this room should agree with you that they struggle with the same thing. We all do. doesn't matter who we are. Um, the sensitive soul thing, the, uh, the tender soul, the... Um, all that I, I kind of have a hard time um, personally understanding that mindset because of when I came to Christ. I came to Christ while I was in the military. In the military, 
there's not really a place for the sensitive at heart, you know? Um, and uh, the early years of my discipleship were really filled with, with challenges, and challenges from false Christians, from cults, from other religions. Uh, we had a little Bible study when I was uh, deployed in the Persian Gulf. I kind of started this Bible study and had one, probably one true Christian there, maybe a few others, but Catholic guys from the platoon started coming, and then a uh, Church of Christ group that believed in baptismal regeneration. I didn't know that then, uh, but yeah, they started coming to our Bible study, and, and so they tried to uh, commandeer our Bible study and uh, try to take it another direction into Church of Christ distinctives, and, and I had to as a young, uh, ignorant young man, use the Bible and deal with Catholicism and baptismal regeneration and all that stuff. It was hard. It was, it was hard to figure that out. But I realized that not everybody who says that they're Christian is truly Christian. And that was a very, very important lesson for me to learn. Um, when I got to the, the uh, college campus, got out of the Navy and went to college, um, I found on the college campus that some of the hardest people to deal with were the professing Christians who didn't act any like Christians or didn't have any doctrine that was distinctively Christian. Uh, they liked to be a part of the campus group like a glorified youth group, but they were really not any, any more Christian than some of the seculars I dealt with. And, and, uh, and, and so we all need to see, and I think especially so for the sensitive, tender-hearted Christians among us, what we all need to see is that we are called biblically to discernment. We're all called to discernment. That is a Christian duty, most essentially because we need to know, as Daniel said at the very beginning, we need to know if the person that we're talking to is a person we are evangelizing or a person we are discipling. Because we as Christians need to be about one of those two things with everybody. Either helping them to become more faithful Christians and conform to Christ, or seeing that that person knows the gospel so they can become a Christian, as we are. So it's essential. It's absolutely essential. We need to discern if the person we're talking to is Christian or not Christian. And so what I'd like to do is read through some scripture together. So grab your Bibles. I'm going to assign some passages uh, and have uh, you guys hold on to those and read them when I call on you. And um, we're going to make a few comments along the way. But I just want you to see the need before we start identifying these kind of splinter groups of sub-Christians. Um, I want you to see the need for discernment, that we have to do this. So uh, let me get uh, a loud reader over in this area for, okay, Ryan. Uh, Matthew 13, 1 to 9. Matthew 13, 1 to 9. There's going to be another Matthew 13 passage. Let's go in this area here. Okay, David, Matthew 13, 18 to 23. Another Matthew 13 passage. Brett, okay. Uh, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Rebecca, would you like to read one? Sure. Great. You need to get a feminine voice in there. And especially for this passage, Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Let's go to this side of the room and get uh, 2 Peter 1 to 3. Uh, second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter, not 1 to 3, that's the whole book. Uh, <laughs> let's take Wayne. Uh, second Peter 2, 1 to 3. And Gary, you're anxious to read one. Jude 3 and 4. I'll get one more reader. Let's go to the back part of the room over here somewhere. In, okay, Daniel. Um, Jude also, Jude 12 through 19. 
June only has one chapter, so when I say three and four, it's verses three and four, 12 and 19. Okay, so we're going to start, and uh, uh, we're going to start with something Jesus has said out of the, uh, the parable of the sower. Let's start over here with Ryan, that 13, 1 and 9. Read it out loud. That same day Jesus went out to the house, or went out of the house and sat inside the seat, and great crowds gathered around about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood out on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, uh, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, and just to make sure we're those with ears to hear, let's read the interpretation of the parable. Okay, David, going to, uh, we're going to start in 18, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in, on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Okay, so for those of you who have ears to hear, um, I want to ask this question. There are a lot of you know, details we could talk about, thorns and springing up too quickly and all that kind of stuff. Generally speaking, when it comes to discerning Christian, non-Christian, what is this parable telling us and its interpretation telling us? Somebody else, not a reader, but some, what is Jesus trying to tell us about the people that we run into? Joe? Sometimes you've got to step back to see if they really are or not. Okay. Especially because if, like some of the, the, the plant grows up and everything, but if you're really close to it, it might look like it's real, but if you step back and see where it is and, and see what the, the time it takes, what happens in time, too, that'll show what it really is. I once had a pastor that said, time and truth go hand in hand. He still says it. That's a good saying. Joel, you're going to say something. I would say Christians, fruit producers. Non-Christians, non-fruit producers. Okay. Producing fruit versus not producing fruit. That's a way to discern. What about, um, let's just talk with numbers. What is this telling us about numbers? You're going to say something? Well, there's a lot more non-Christians and Christians in this group, it sounds like at least. A lot more non-Christians than Christians in this group. That is important for us to understand. The way is narrow. He's telling us. Yeah. <laughs> the way is narrow. Yeah. He's telling us that even yeah. the good seed, now this is good seed. Yeah. Even the good seed, the majority of people upon whom the good seed falls, they do not become Christians. So we're not talking about the, the uh, pygmy living in a cave in Africa. We're not talking about you know, rank pagans growing up in a foreign land. We're not talking about Hindus who all they've known is Hinduism all their life. We're talking about those 
who had been evangelized. Kids who grew up in church. Kids who grew up in church. Many of them think they are Christians. They have made professions of faith and even served in ministry. Some of them have even become pastors. Stay safe. But they're not Christians. They're not Christians. It's just as Jesus said later in Matthew 22, 14, for many are called, few are chosen. Do you think of that when you meet somebody who tells you, oh yeah, I'm a Christian? Are you immediately thinking, what kind of soil are you? Is there fruit in your life or not? Are you thinking that? Because you should. That's why Jesus tells us this. He doesn't tell us this for no purpose. Sadly, there are many sowers of seed today who have decided to alter the seed. They've tried to file down the sharp edges that are on the seed. Uh, they have tried to soften the demands. They've tried to paint the seed to make it more attractive. Uh, some have even tried to sugarcoat the seed to make it taste better and have it go down easier. All those alterations end up causing a chemical reaction which alters the seed's chemical composition, rendering it impotent, unable to spring forth and produce life. Some, I think, who alter the seed do so out of ignorance or weakness of faith, thinking that the seed is not powerful enough to, on its own to do what God decided it to do. Others do so because they're ashamed of the seed. They, they really think the seed is not very attractive, it's ugly, it's rugged, uh, unshapely, it's not attractively colored, or maybe it's too bitter. And that shame of the seed is a form of unbelief. It's not obedient. There are others who are, frankly, they're just enemies of the seed. And so they dress like farmers, but they're not sowing seed. So let's read that next. Who's got the next one? Is that you, Brett? Yeah, what was that? Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Look at that. Yep. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. Okay, so you, can, so you can stop. That's fine. You can stop right there. So an enemy has done this. He's sown not good seed, but bad seed. Weeds. Weed seed. <laughs> so he's sown that. He's thrown that in the, in, the, in, the good, in the field. And now keep in mind, only one quarter, according to Jesus' previous parable, 25% of that field is going to produce, right? So... There are all these there are three different kinds of soils, or four different kinds of soils. Three of them will not end up in time bearing good fruit. But the ones that do will spring forth a lot of fruit. And in that field, where we already have confusion and need to have discernment about the kind of person we're talking to, oh yeah, an enemy is going to throw in false seeds to make false weeds grow up that look like the Christians. Okay, so with that in mind, now we're going to hear from Rebecca reading loudly, Matthew 7, 13 to 23. Go back to the uh, chapter 7, end of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's very similar to what we studied in Luke, but it's more expansive. So here you go. Enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Thank you. Very well read. Why is Jesus telling us all this? Discernment. 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 It's for all the reasons you talked about. You know, not, well, guard your heart with all diligence. It's, it's for not wandering after false teachers who dress like shepherds but inside are ravenous wolves and just want to destroy you. Stay away from those people. It's for the sake of discernment so that you can know who's friend and foe. It's so that you can know who's going to be helpful for your spiritual life and who's going to be harmful for it. Um... The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That's the people we're looking for. So is it okay for us, when a person professes to be a Christian before us, is it okay for us to ask questions that help us discern, does this person do the will of God the Father? Mm-hmm. Absolutely it is. We must do that. Alyssa? I think it's also there for discernment in our own life. Yeah. Whether we are matching that or whether we are... A seed that fell, you know, for a while and away, or we Excellent point. Yeah. So it's it's for our, discerning our own hearts too, as Paul continually says, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Mm-hmm. Gary, I think it's also important for us to discern our gospel. Oh, yeah. That way, because we have a tendency at times to broaden uh, the gospel to try to pull more people in. Yeah, we want to broaden what Jesus intentionally says is narrow. narrow. Yeah. 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 Matt, we, we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> I was just thinking about Alyssa's comment. The more we do examine ourselves, the more adept we become at discerning other people's professions, too. Hey, that is a very insightful point. So the more we examine ourselves in our own lives, the more discerning we become about other people as well. Because whatever's in our heart is in their heart, too. Annie. Doesn't that verse kind of point out that a lot of times we might not know until the end whether we are, and it doesn't change how we should behave ultimately towards others? Like we should still show the same Christian love and com- compassion regardless. I'm, I'm a little bit confused about that. Okay, so we are going to show the same kind of compassion and concern, but this is, this is actually written specifically so we will know how to interact with people, so that we will be discerning about the nature of their Christian profession, whether it's true or whether it's false. And yeah, it is true, but Jesus did say you will know them. He didn't say you'll know them later on by when the Lord rejects them. He said you will know them now by their fruits. Look for the fruits. 
Look to see what's coming out of their life. We are commanded to know that. We're to be fruit inspectors. Now, can you do that in a strident, harsh, angry, fundamentalist kind of way? No. <laughs> you, I, I believe that's true that you cannot. <laughs> I can. I will be on my guard that I don't. Uh, there are some in this room who truly have the market on tenderness. Yeah, that's true. Um, but no, this is given so that we will examine them now. But just as the parable of the tares told us, Sometimes we just need to wait until the end when, when the Lord, you know, he cuts down all the grasses and brings them into his barn and he separates out the chaff from the wheat. Well, so I was thinking of your sermon a few weeks ago of Saul and David where it's like the difference between, I don't know if it was you or Josh, but either way. Josh for yourself, yeah. Right. Um, but Saul, where so many things that he did were clear evidence of right. you know, his belief and his faith, and then he wasn't. Yeah, some things, though, along the way that were, you know, hard to perceive, maybe at first, attitudes toward David, attitudes about righteousness, even him saying, David, you're more righteous than I. I ought not to be hunting you down like a dead dog. That's that's true. I shouldn't be doing that. Oh, but here I come again. <laughs> um, I can't help myself. You know, trying to pin him to the wall with a spear. That was a kind of telltale sign. Murder. You know, not a good guy. Witch of Endor. All that kind of stuff. So, but over time, it's true. Over time, his sins became hard to contain. And that's why, you know, Paul says in Galatians, um, Whatever you sow, you also reap. God will not be mocked. You cannot be sure your sins will find you out, Moses said. So, let, let, let's, uh, let's keep on moving. It's important to what they said they were doing in Jesus' name. They yes. weren't doing great, big, wonderful, we cast out demons. They weren't saying, we fed the needy and we, you know, they weren't doing fruits of the Spirit. They were going, they were trying to make a show of their faith. Yeah. And I think that's how, Annie, you can use this to say, like, clearly the things they're even claiming as their proof is proof. What's really frightening is that they come before Christ himself and say that. And, yeah. That, that is true spiritual blindness. When you come before the Lord that you really have never known, and you say, I know you. And it says, it, notice it says there in what Rebecca read, there are many, many who are on that broad road. Many. It's the religious road. It's the Christian evangelical road. And they do not know Jesus Christ. They say they do. But in the end, the truth of the matter is going to be settled when Christ himself says, I never knew you. You may say you know me, but I don't know you. That's a frightening thing to hear. So they're workers of lawlessness. They're doers of iniquity. They are taught that that's all okay by false teachers who themselves are slaves of iniquity. And they want to create a band of followers of themselves who are also okay with their iniquity. Uh, they sinful uh, company loves sinful company. They like people to sin with. And they love to engage in false worship together. Now turn over to uh, 2 Peter, end of your Bibles, right after Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, and I believe, is it you, Wayne? Yeah. yeah, that's 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. 
Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, hold that in mind. Is it Daniel? You're or no, uh, yeah. Jude 3 and 4. Yeah. Now, now keep in mind what Peter just told us. Now let's know what Gary says out of Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay, so Peter says they will be coming, and Jude says, aha, they've arrived. They have infiltrated our ranks. Who's got the next one? Jude um, 12 to 19, is that you, Daniel? Yeah. Read that out loud. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars far uh, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Okay, well, hold on just one second. I'm going to have you read those next two verses in just a second. So what, what our Lord taught us, what Peter predicted... Jude experienced and he's telling us the false teachers are here they're in the church do we think that that was just an apostolic age kind of a thing or do we think this thing continues to today definitely continues today absolutely it continues to today we ought to understand that and I, I hear this all the time I was just um, I, I talk to people all the time who tell us, yeah, you know, I was in this church and I tried to bring this up or confront this and they accused me of being divisive. They accused me of causing disunity. What does Jude say? These are the hidden reefs at your love feast. These are the hidden reefs. They're the ones who cause shipwreck. They're the ones who cause disunity. Look at verse 16. Grumblers, malcontents, they follow their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters. They show favoritism to get an advantage. All those uh, imagery, all that imagery from nature in the first part there, all explaining the nature of these people. They are bad news. And they're the ones who are causing division. They're the ones who are causing disunity in the church. Now read that last part there, verses 17 and 18. Uh, you want me to go through 19? 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, uh, devoid of the spirit. Okay. What does it mean if they're devoid from the spirit? Devoid of the spirit? They are not Christians. Romans 8. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and so I just heard fruit of the Spirit. So if they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have the fruit of the Spirit coming out of their life. If they don't have the fruit of the Spirit coming out of their life, what do they have? The works of the flesh. Galatians 5. Works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. Look at that list. Grow in discernment. Listen, <clears throat> evangelicalism is not immune from all this. In fact, it's everywhere we look. We just need to be discerning. We just need to have eyes to see it. We're not immune from false conversions. <clears throat> We're not immune from errant evangelistic methods of ignorant or doubting Christians. We're not immune or protected from the infiltration of false teachers. It would be totally foolish of us to think uh, that, and it would be actually disobedient to Christ. We must exercise discernment because God has commanded us to do so. In uh, 1 John 4.1, jot that down. We read this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Demonic spirits spread their demonic doctrines through flesh and blood people. Through people. And these are people with faces. Mm -hmm. These are people with charm, with humor, with laughter, with speaking ability, rhetorical ability. They are intelligent people. They, they have degrees. They have families. They have cute little kids. You, you like to be in their presence. But listen, we are not to believe them out of hand. Okay? It's truly loving to discern whether they are Christians or not. It's truly loving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21 says also, likewise, <clears throat> do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Turn over to, while you're thinking about that, I'm going to explain it, but go to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll kind of wrap up our little discernments section here, but those verses don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Verse Thessalonians 5. Those verses describe the situation in the early church during apostolic times before the closing and uh, the completion, dissemination of the completed New Testament canon. Local churches had local church prophets. And in the local churches, there were also visiting prophets who had a prophetic gift. <clears throat> but not all of those visiting prophets came with a prophetic gift from God. Some came with a prophetic gift from somewhere else. Not everybody came with good intent. And so Paul commanded the Thessalonians and John commanded, commanded the Ephesians, test everything. Test the spirits. Same thing happening in Corinth. And that was the scene described in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. If you look in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 and following, Paul is laying down instructions for orderly worship. He talks about uh, tongues speaking, which is really prophetic revelation coming through another language. 
Um, but especially prophecy, he says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Let the other prophets weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for, so they had control over this gift. They didn't need to just blurt it out, right? It's not ecstatic. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the fruits of the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So he's describing a time in the early church before, like I said, before the completed canon, visiting prophets or prophets in their midst, and, and there's revelation coming in. There needs to be orderliness. And those prophets need to be subject to other people with a prophetic gift. He laid down that charge because the Corinthian church had been infiltrated with false prophets who prophesied, frankly, blasphemy. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, I want you to understand. He's starting out this section. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. People are saying that in Corinth? Well, sort of, yeah. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is not talking there about some superficial profession like Jesus occurs, Jesus is Lord, and, and let that be that. That's the test of discernment. He's referring to the nature of the so-called prophecies, ones that served to undermine the person and work of Christ, resulting in a cursed Jesus. And the case in point in Corinth, there were those in their midst who were denying the very principle of bodily resurrection. If you deny the principle of bodily resurrection as a principle, then guess who didn't raise from the dead bodily? Christ. So that's basically saying Jesus, who died on the cross, he's not resurrected in his body. He's cursed by God because his body still lies there in a grave. He's cursed. And they were saying that by prophetic, so-called prophetic revelation. So... Paul is commanding Corinthian discernment in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He's commanding it of the Thessalonian church. He's co John is commanding it of the Ephesian church. It's all through scripture. And I'm just trying to hit the highlights there. And I think that's enough just to help you see the responsibility we have to be good Bereans, not just as Bible students, but as people students. We need to study people. We need to know people. <coughs> We have to be discerning. We have to test all things, hold fast to what's good, shun every form of evil. And with regard to people, we have to love them all, be tender, kind, patient, compassionate, but clear. You need to be clear with all people, whether they're Christians or not. Okay, so now that we understand our responsibility with the 10 minutes we have left, let's try to identify some sub-Christian Christianity in this evangelicalism adrift, okay? So the identity of some sub-Christian evangelicals or sub-Christian Christians, many forms of it. Um, and I, I want to just say, uh, here is kind of an overview comment here. There, there are things that these varieties of sub-Christian Christianity has in common. Uh, they all use the Christian text, the Bible. Um, they all use Christian jargon, Christian terminology. They talk about heaven and hell and Jesus and angels and all the rest. They, they all practice some form of Christian religion. They go to church. But they all have this in common, too. They deviate in some way from the gospel or clear implications or demands of the gospel. They deviate in some significant way. So in some quarters of evangelicalism, 
we find uh, completely false gospels that are pretty clear on getting a little bit closer to them. Uh, people drawn by fleshly desires, remaining enslaved to those desires, and Wayne, I think, was brought up the prosperity gospel. Uh, word faith movements, word of faith movements, pretty much almost everything you see on TBN falls in this category. You gotta, you gotta see that as what it is. When, when I hear people, so some people say, yeah, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, do you go to church? Oh, no, I don't, but I watch, I, I watch Christian TV all the time. Sure, telltale sign to me. There's some concern. There's some concern. Because pretty much everything that's broadcast worthy and will make the money are things that are bad theology. Bad theology. Yeah, I'd say, um, well, first, two things. One, uh, what Jesus says in Matthew 7 is probably the scariest part of his entire gospel to the church. Um, and, and, and the second thing is, one of the implications for us is a discernment that we have to apply to our own lives to make sure that we're not the misdirection to others. Exactly. So that we don't become the stumbling block. We don't become the... Uh, um, yeah, the means of other people going astray. That's right. I think I saw your hand over here. Yeah, this is a, it's always hard to tell when to say something to somebody you believe is a Christian. Like, well, you know, somebody is using psychology to um, spread the gospel or raise their children. You know, at what point do I say, I, be careful because psychology has nothing to do with Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. uh, especially when I'm, when I know I'm going to be seen instantly as an enemy or as just contrary for the sake of being contrary as soon as I say that. So when, when to speak and when not to speak, what, how, and really I think that has a lot to do with discerning people, understanding how, you know, the tongue of the wise um, is, is studies how to answer. So I think, I think it's good for us to slow down, not answer too quickly and get to know a person and really ask some more discerning questions. So as we go through, I'm going to go through some, some of these varieties of sub-Christian Christianity, ism, whatever, and go through some different varieties of that. When we come to the end of that, we're going to talk about how to get into kind of a diagnostic conversation with somebody and just ask questions that at first are not so offensive on the surface to help us to discern what's really going on. Okay, and it's not what do you believe about psychology? You know, it's, that's not the question. You know, it's because there are many people out there who are true Christians but deceived by things that are not helpful. Okay, so and, and there are some people who, when they when they talk about their use of psychology, they're not talking about using the the core principles of it. They're they're talking about some psychological study that they thought was interesting. And sometimes we can judge them out of hand as too quickly as, well, they're in the bad category, you know, so we want to be careful. That's a good question. So in some quarters of, of evangelicalism, there's that TBN kind of stuff. In other quarters of evangelicalism, we find false gospels that promise that um, your religious observance will be a means to assuage and subdue and even erase guilt. Um, they de-emphasize the cross. They ignore it altogether sometimes. They put all these, this emphasis on human works. Um, Al Mohler, I'm going to mention this again, he wrote a really, really good article on his blog about moralism um, and how we as Christians need to guard against moralism. You need to find that on his blog. I'll mention it again, though, as I said. But conservative forms of this emphasis on works involve strict adherence to practices found in the Bible, like fasting or Sabbath observance or prayer. Or, you know, all those um, 
you know, we're going to do a 40-day fast, you know, and I'm going to let you know I'm doing it, you know. <laughs> and Jesus said that we're not supposed to talk about our works of righteousness, okay? But somehow we have evangelicals get a pass if it'll sell some books, you know. <laughs> so 40 days of fast or 40 days of prayer or whatever. Those are conservative forms of asceticism or legalism. There are also liberal forms of this, like today social justice or taking personal responsibility for past racial injustices um, our own guilt of white privilege and how we benefited from white privilege and all that stuff um, so whether liberal or conservative there's nothing um, more and all this is nothing more than a, a modern form of a pride inducing legalism uh, that binds people there are also sub-Christian Gospels, and they bait people with worldly attractions. They appeal to worldly interests like wealth, success, influence. It's not as overt uh, as the TBN, um, you know, prosperity preacher variety, but it's much more subtle. It comes in a, in a suburban dress, you know, suburb, not a suburban gown, but a <laughs> suburban clothing. You know, it comes in suburban clothing. So, but uh, they bring people into their uh, large, successful churches and they convey to them only partial information. They leave off the hard bits of the gospel, the demands of holiness, the demands of lordship and self-denial, warnings about coming judgment, and they just talk about how you can have a better life if you just follow these steps. I can have a better family. I can have better kids. Let's do a series on this. Let's do topics on that. So this is probably not an exhaustive list here. Let's make some of the varieties, uh, list some of these varieties of sub-Christian Christianity, and then we'll interact with them biblically. Um, looks like I'm not going to be able to get to a whole lot, but we have next week, okay? So I've organized this alphabetically. It's not uh, by relative popularity or importance, but so you can write down Christian, just Christian is going to be at the front of all these, Christian antinomianism, Christian liberalism, Christian minimalism, Christian moralism, Christian nominalism, Christian politicism, and Christian relativism. Okay, got it? <laughs> There's at least seven Christians there. <laughs> okay, ready? Antinomianism, liberalism, I'm going to come back to them. Antinomianism, liberalism, minimalism, moralism, nominalism, politicism, I'm calling it politicism, it could be nationalism. I think this um, is faster than the first time. <laughs> What's that? He thinks it's faster than the first time. We got down to maybe three, so. And relativism. <laughs> Let's just start and make it simple. Antinomianism. Anti. It's the word anti. And then N-O-M. Nom. I-A-N. And then ism. Anti. Nom. E-N. Ism. Antinomianism. Yeah. Could I suggest maybe Josh prints a notes page with these as headings for next week? You hear that, Josh? Yeah, an assignment from Wayne. <laughs> Again. So, sure, yeah. We'll try to do that for next week. We're almost out of time anyway tonight, so don't sweat it. You know, I don't take any notes or anything. What is Christian antinomianism? Anybody know what that is? Yeah. I think it's the abuse of grace. Uh, I am saved. I can do whatever I want. Okay. Which is quite prevalent today, mm -hmm. dangerously. Yes, it because sure is. And that is doubting whether you were ever saved. 
That's the biggest sin. That's the, the biggest. Oh in, yes. In that, okay. in that system, the biggest sin is to doubt that you were truly saved. Okay. So for those of you who didn't hear what Ren said, he said antinomianism is basically, and he said it's very very prevalent today. It's the abuse of grace to say that um, there are no really re real requirements on my life for holiness. So I can kind of do what I want. I can be saved, do what I want. And Brett's saying that the, the, um, the biggest, if you're in that system, the greatest sin you, commit, you can commit among fellow adherents to that system is to doubt your salvation. Is to, um, to think that somehow your behavior, your fruit, is uh, a manifestation of your heart. Yeah, good. Can you give an example of that? Um, I certainly can. Thank you. <laughs> um, antinomianism, just let me explain that real quick and I'll come back to your question. Antinomianism is really a reference to lawlessness. Anti, you understand what that means, and then nomos. Nomos is the Greek word for law. Okay, so it's anti-law. And then it's an ism, okay? So it's a way of thinking that is kind of anti-law. So the most recent modern example or illustration of this teaching comes from, sadly, Billy Graham's grandson, William Graham Tullian Chavidjan. Uh, Tullian Chavidjan, who basically taught that we need to stop commanding Christian obedience. Because that is nothing but browbeating legalism. There are others who have followed Tulian Chavidjan's lead in this. Uh, he used to blog a lot at the Gospel Coalition blog. Um, and I think through some differences of opinion or whatever, he, he was asked to step out of that blog. But he was very influential because a lot of his articles were posted and, and many people uh, were fans. But Chavidjan, um, you guys want me to spell that, Tulian? No. Billy Graham would not approve of this. I mean, I don't want to make any connection between Billy Graham's theology and, and Tulian Javidjan. Tulian Javidjan departed. Um, he's so, his, his method of doing this, some people say it's just like Romans 6. Let's go on sinning, the grace may increase. I mean, if, if my sin magnifies the grace of God, let's go on saying the grace may increase. So Paul said, those people who say that, they're just, they're, their condemnation is just, is justified, is deserved. If you, if you really think that, that that's a good strategy to magnifying the grace of God, yeah, your condemnation is deserved. But to the intervention, his form of doing this was to, he was a Presbyterian, and it was really sad because he took over um, D. James Kennedy's uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and he completely eviscerated it. Um, he took out pipe organ, he took out the really nice mu musical instrumental stuff, and he brought in colored lights and bog machines and all that other stuff, and... and um, just gutted it and turned it into this totally different thing. But he was, at least said, he was an adhering Presbyterian. It's Presbyterian in his doctrine. Um, took Presbyterian ordinances, or not ordinances, ordination, I should say. So he went back to Presbyterian doctrine, um, the doctrines of grace, um, and emphasized in that first point of the doctrine of grace, total depravity. And he basically said that we are 
told we are so depraved um, that Christians simply can't obey, can't repent, can't pursue holiness. That's how depraved we are. See, our, our problem is that we don't understand depravity as the Bible talks about depravity. And so therefore, we can't expect Christians to actually um, repent, obey. Really, we just need to encourage sanctification of Christians by telling people not what they must do um, in pursuing holiness, but what Jesus has already done for them in their justification. And if they hear more and more about what God has already done for them and how Jesus has already died for their sins, well, then that's just going like, to warm their hearts and they're going to become more holy through that. But don't you dare tell them that they must pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's legalism. That's legalism. He doesn't read his Bible. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't read his Bible. He can't bring that up either. Scott's <laughs> <laughs> having a hard time, I can tell. <laughs> One, I'm, I'm just going to close with this. One author coined a very apt phrase to describe Trevigian's approach. Uh, she called it celebratory failureism. I really, that's a very good term. He, and and that, really, that really does capture it. He would celebrate failure. He would celebrate, he liked to so highlight Christian failure and weakness that everyone felt right at home with their worldliness. And I hear this, as Ren was saying, I hear this a lot. I hear it a lot. I've heard it in the sermons of popular pastors in our area, ones who are very significantly influencing UNC students, um, one, all over the state, really, all over the country. They, they, you know, it's not just Tulian who's saying these things or who has said these things. It's all over the place. And it seems clear to me that the emphasis to highlight human fallibility and failure is so that no one is going to look too hard at their own lives. No one's going to look too hard. If I emphasize that we're all totally corrupt and totally depraved, if you find any inconsistency in me, I say, well, I've been teaching that all along. It's just it's consistent with how I teach. We're all failures. So I'll come back. We'll, we'll come back and review this uh, next time. Uh, we're a little bit over time. Is it a quick? Yeah. Real quick, Daniel. I was just going to say it's interesting what Brett said as far as um, the biggest sin in that view being questioning your salvation when you're not going to pursue holiness, and that's exactly the question you should ask. That's right. That's right. They really should, and they're being inoculated against the gospel, against true self-examination, which is really saving. Um, so anyway, all this to say, we are, we're going to go through these things because I want you to have some clarity about what's out there that you are experiencing and interacting with all the time. Um, it's not so that we can somehow become uh, more, uh, you know, feel real good about ourselves that we're not doing that because all the stuff that's, uh, all the stuff we're talking about and all these different isms and sub-Christian Christianity, we've all done it. We've, we've all been a part of all this stuff. We've come out of it. We're emerging out of it. And um, so we need to watch our own life and doctrine closely. Guard our own hearts with uh, all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. So it's a good note to end on. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your uh, protection of us through the truth. Through uh, We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit, who guards us and warns us and protects us. We thank you for giving us your word that we can read. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. 
So for those who um, follow you, follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his words, his teaching, we truly belong to you. And that isn't our own doing. That's by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's by your uh, your plan and your good purpose, Father. We thank you for that. And we thank you for uh, saving us. We just ask that you would help us to grow in discernment, that we could uh, really reach out to evangelize the largest group in our midst, in our area, of sub-Christian Christians, uh, those who claim to be Christians and really have bought into a sub-Christian gospel. So please help us to grow, understand, have clarity, and help us to be gentle with people. Uh, I pray that none of this would make us uh, harsh or, or knee-jerk, um, condemning or judgmental about others, but all of this would just simply equip us to be more effective, um, kind and loving uh, servants of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.